It's Wednesday, February 23rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Biden has said that we are seeing the beginning of a Russian invasion of Ukraine as Putin has moved troops into two separatist regions in eastern Ukraine. In response to that, President Biden announced a round of sanctions against Russian banks and oligarchs to keep them from conducting financial transactions with the West. Mariana Alfaro, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for what to know about these sanctions and how it could affect gas prices here in the U.S. Next, in this unrelenting U.S. housing market, renting a home could be harder than buying a home. With a high demand and continuing low supply, we have seen rental prices for single-family homes rise 7.8% last year. With people being priced out of owning a home, many resort to renting only to find the same problems. A rental listing pops up and an immediate flood of applications for that property. Allison McNeely, personal finance reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for more. Finally, get ready to start hearing the term mega drought more often when talking about the American Southwest. A new study shows that the past two decades have been the driest in 1,200 years. Henry Fountain, climate reporter at the New York Times, joins us for how we could be in store for this for possibly another 10 years. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Starting today, we'll impose sanctions on members of the Russian elite and their family members, all of whom directly benefit from their connections with the Kremlin. Other Russian elites and their family members are on notice that additional actions could be taken against them. Joining us now is Mariana Alfaro, breaking news reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Mariana. Thanks for having me. Well, wanted to talk about what's going on with Ukraine and Russia. There's been a lot of movement happening very recently. Most notably, we saw President Biden announce a round of sanctions on uh, Russian financial institutions, uh, some oligarchs out there. Obviously, this is all in an effort to dissuade Russia from invading Ukraine, although we're already seeing parts of that happen. Uh, President Vladimir Putin over there has recognized two regions in Ukraine as independent. He's moved in some troops into that area after his parliament gave him permission to do so. And, uh, you know, uh, President Biden himself already said, you know, this is already kind of the beginning of an invasion. So let's start by talking about these sanctions, because, you know, this is what they're trying to do to dissuade him. What are we seeing with these sanctions? Yeah, so Tuesday, you know, Biden finally walked us through a few of the sanctions that um, are already going to be put in place, you know, mainly affecting the big banks in Russia, two big financial institutions there. The plan here is to cut Russia from like the international world of banks and kind of cut them off from being able to to carry out those transactions. Um, And then again, he's also targeting the elite, the wealthy corners of Russia and and their financial members and and their family members, all of this kind of to hit them in in the pocket. But it's just a signal that it might, you know, it's just two banks right now. The the plan maybe here is that they're going to target more financial institutions just to completely cut off Russia from these streams. We're also seeing uh, the European Union announce sanctions against Russia. You know, so obviously this is the effort to cut them off to be making some of their financial transactions. But how effective can these sanctions be, at least in the near term, right? If President Putin has already decided to invade, he wants to do all this stuff. How much of an impact is it going to have? It really, it's very hard to tell if it's enough to decide. At this point, Putin is making these decisions knowing that these sanctions are coming and then he's still going forth. So maybe in the long term it will affect and, and make him reconsider. But at this time, I think he's already thought 
this through and, and is still willing to continue. So we'll have to see how stronger the sanctions get the more they go in. But at this point, I think it's just going to they move in more sanctions in that way. But it, I don't think it's going to hit a wall yet. I mean, it seems like Putin is already there. He's laid out three conditions he wants uh, from Ukraine to say that, you know, he'll be able to back off. He wants them to recognize Russia's sovereignty over Crimea. He wants them mm-hmm. to renounce their bid to join NATO and to partially demilitarize. I mean, those all seem like non-starters for Ukraine. I think they've even kind of suggested that. So it's just going to be really tough to get any traction on any of that. And, you know, right now, Ukraine, and, and I think the West has been very uh, good at acknowledging the efforts that Ukraine has put up to push against all of these Russian demands and, and also doing it in a way that is not militarized yet. But I do think that those are very tall orders, and it is more likely that Ukraine's going to start like military pushing back against that than actually accepting any of these conditions. There are could be a lot of impacts for Americans here in the United States. President Biden said specifically he hopes to limit the impact that Americans would feel from you know sanctions on Russia and other stuff. Uh, we're seeing uh, a gas and oil prices possibly go up. This is one of the big concerns that we could be seeing here in America. Yeah, and that's the thing. I think that that we don't think about it when we're talking about what's going on over there because it's so far away, but it will directly affect American pockets, especially, you know, gas prices are already up. They're a little lower than they were in, you know, in Christmas, but they are higher than they were last year. So whenever folks say, well, why why are we going in or why are we getting involved? It's because this is affecting, you know, major gas lines. And I think you can see it already with Germany. You know, they announced this morning about um, Nord Stream 2 and this was a pipeline that could have supplied 50% of Germany's annual gas supply. And now that they're deciding to block efforts to continue, you know, fully establishing the pipeline, prices are going to go up in Germany. And it's a hit that they really try to avoid. But now they couldn't no longer continue defending this project with what Russia did on Monday. Right, so yeah. I think it's something we have to keep an eye on here in the U.S. because if you don't want to get involved, but, but this is still something that directly affects um, pockets here. Yeah, I mean, Germany was pretty hesitant to put a halt to this, but things kept progressing. So obviously they had to step in. The good thing is, right, is that pipeline's not in order yet. Germany's not getting that gas, uh, natural gas from Russia. So in the short term, it shouldn't impact anything. But, you know, longer term, right? How, you know, what would, uh, you know, facing all these sanctions, what will Russia do in response? You know, could they halt gas delivery and things like that to all the European countries that rely on them so much? And, you know, going back to the crude stuff, uh, crude oil prices, right? Mm -hmm. They say they can go over $100 a barrel. So really Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff to kind of worry about when it when it comes to thinking of how long this conflict could extend. And I mean, I get I keep using Germany as an example just because of what happened Tuesday morning, but they rely on I think it was like two thirds of their gas consumption came from Russia. It's not something that you just can live off without, you know. And again, the, the Nord Stream 2 was not supposed to go online until like halfway through this year. So all of these things we're talking about right now are going to have an effect in months, not immediate. And that is the kind of thing we should all be focusing on when we're talking about all the moves that the West is making, because it's not going to be an immediate effect on Russia or us, but it's going to come soon. Mariana Alfaro, breaking news reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. There's sort of a fundamental demographic shift that is underway here, which has, you know, sort of been occurring over the past couple of years, but has really accelerated in recent years, which is that people who are moving into these single family homes aren't intending to go back from where they came. Joining us now is Allison McNeely, 
personal finance reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Allison. Thank you for having me. Well, throughout the pandemic, we were talking a lot about the housing market, one that was marked by really, really high demand, but very, very little supply of homes for people to buy. And that obviously sent off bidding frenzies, all the whole thing we had been talking about for so long. But right now what we're seeing too is that renting a home could be even harder than buying one. Uh, You know, the housing market continues uh, in the same way. We're seeing rental prices for single family homes grow 7.8% last year. That's an all time high. So it's just as hard to rent a home, if not more than to buy a house right now. So Allison, tell us a little more about this. That's exactly right. So it is incredibly difficult to rent a single family home in the U.S. right now, particularly in so-called sunbelt states, but really across the country. And that's sort of reflecting a couple larger themes. One, lots of people left the expensive coastal cities like New York City, San Francisco during the pandemic in search of more space, in search of a backyard, that sort of thing. So that has driven demand for single family homes. And what we're also seeing now, now that we're kind of two years into the pandemic, maybe hopefully coming to the end of the pandemic, is that a lot of those people who move aren't moving back to where they came. Uh, There's sort of a fundamental demographic shift that is underway here, which has, you know, sort of been occurring over the past couple of years, but has really accelerated in recent years, which is that people who are moving into these single family homes aren't intending to go back from where they came. And that sort of ties into the broader housing market, which is that the buying market is very, very competitive right now. So we're seeing demand for rent rentals uh, among people who can't afford to buy a house, who maybe don't want to buy a house, who can't get the down payment together, that sort of thing. So the two markets really move together and are reflecting those larger themes. You spoke to a real estate agent in Atlanta who says that she's really only able to do business with people right now who have a budget of $5,000 a month for rent, which is pretty high. I mean, that's higher than some mortgage payments. And, uh, you know, a house will go up, it'll get 15 to 20 applications, and then boom, it's rented within a day. So that, that competition is just as high for the rental houses. Yeah, exactly. Atlanta is really the perfect example, one of the best examples of this phenomenon in general. You know, there's just so much demand for houses, get 15, 20 applications a day, and be rented within the day. And there's also the emergence of bidding wars for rents, which is kind of unheard of. You think of bidding wars in the housing market, but not necessarily in the renting market. So that's sort of reflected the, the broader frenzy, if you will, in a place like Atlanta. You made mention in your article about institutional investors. And while that's a, a small portion of the rental market, they are increasingly kind of fueling the low supply of homes. They're buying up a lot of homes to offer for rent. So that's another sort of aspect of the market that is, as you said, small but growing is institutional investors. I mean, especially considering we're heading into a rising interest rate environment, like real estate is sort of the ultimate hedge on inflation, if you will. If you're worried about the value of your investments going down, if interest rates are going up, real estate is one area that's less of a concern. And especially since so many of these investors can pay cash. So, you know, they're moving into these cities, rolling up, being able to pay pure crash, don't have to worry about getting a mortgage, anything like that. And that is also pricing out people in the market. Where else are we seeing really high rents? I I know Miami was leading the way with huge increases, Mm -hmm. too. Yeah, so there's been a few cities that kind of come up over and over. Miami, Atlanta, Nashville, 
Charlotte, Las Vegas, Florida, so places like Orlando. You know, really, again, anywhere in that sort of Sunbelt region is really what's where rents have been increasing the fastest and really where that competition is. You spoke to a few owners of apartment buildings and, and homes and whatnot, and they're listing everything that they have. And they're seeing that the listings for their rental homes are getting a ton of applications. And then maybe on the buying front, if they want to buy a home, they're not really seeing as much. So that this demand is uh, seems to be going further than, than uh, you know owning a home. As you mentioned, there's a lot of factors that go into that. People are just being priced out. So they have to go to this next alternative of renting. There's also, it's really interesting because, you know, as millennials continue to get older, they're raising families now and are, you know, increasing their own buying power. There's sort of a demographic shift or, or maybe a lifestyle shift that's underway right now that one economist pointed out to me, which is that some millennials just simply don't want to own a home. Maybe they could if they sort of made that a priority to put together a down payment, but they're just not interested in that. They don't want to be tied down. They don't want to have to worry about paying for the repair person themselves when they can call their landlord to have them fix it. So there's the desirability of renting sort of as a, a lifestyle choice is changing as well. And that has been changing over the past few years, but has really accelerated during the pandemic. Allison McNeely, personal finance reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. The last 22 years actually rank as the driest 22-year period in at least 1,200 years, based on tree ring records. And so humans now are contending with a water limitation crisis in the West that modern society in this region has not yet had to contend with. Joining us now is Henry Fountain, climate reporter at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Henry. Thanks for having me. Well, you're going to start hearing the word mega drought a lot more rolling around. Right now, that's what we're seeing in the Southwest, the American Southwest. It's uh, become so severe. We're hearing that this is uh, the driest two decades that we've seen in the last 1,200 years. So it's uh, it's a serious issue. So, Henry, tell us what we're seeing. There's a, a new study that was kind of looking at this using tree ring data, and uh, it really just shows the uh, you know the problems that we're facing here. Yeah, um, these researchers using that tree ring data, which goes back to 800 AD, were able to sort of look at past climate patterns, and they've they found you know similar long periods of drought, 20, 30 years long five or six times in that, in that record. But looking at current tree ring data, they've discovered that right now is actually worse than any of those times in the last 1,200 years. And, uh, you know, it's, it, the other thing is it's probably going to continue. So what we're seeing with this data is in wet years, the rings on these trees are a little wider and they're thinner in dry ones. So that's what they use to show what we have going on right now, basically. Yeah, I mean, a, a tree grows better when conditions are wet, it grows worse when conditions are dry. So you see that reflected in the, in the growth rings of a trunk. It's, you know, you look at a trunk of a tree and you see all those rings. And so they were able to um, directly relate that to the moisture content of the soil. And moisture content of the soil is a real good indicator of drought. And so, you know, they discovered times when moisture content was really low, uh, one in the 16th century, I think, like a 30-year period in the 16th century, and earlier on. And this period now, is the moisture content is actually drier than any of those previous times. 
they talked about the role of temperature and how important that is. Maybe even more important than precipitation itself. You know, uh, we're uh, I live in California, so we're always dealing with this, right? We, you know, hoping that it rains a little bit more just so we can build up the reservoirs and all that stuff. But it, it really illustrates how big a part this climate change stuff is. The role of temperature is really important. You know, maybe not so much in California because California has really variable precipitation. But certainly in the rest of the Southwest, you know, we don't get much rain. And so really what has has an effect is steadily, relentlessly increasing temperatures related to climate change. The way it was described to me, so a, a warmer, warmer air wants to hold more moisture. So as the air gets warmer, it literally sucks water out of wherever it can find it, meaning from plants, from the soil or whatever. So that's really the, uh, the drought effect. It's not so much that it hasn't rained so much. It's really that it's just been so hot that whatever moisture there is just gets taken up by the air. Throughout this 1,200-year record, we've seen a lot of other big mega droughts, some that have lasted as long as 30 years. And what they think is that we could be in a similar pattern. This current one, we're talking about 22 years of data, that the driest that we've had right now. But they're saying that this could be another 30-year period that we're looking at. The thing to remember about droughts like this, mega droughts, long droughts, is that there can be a wet year or two. But the problem is you need to get a bunch of wet years in a row. For instance, in this since 2000, during this current mega drought, there was a pretty wet year in 2005. 2019 was pretty wet. But if they get followed up by an additional dry year or a bunch of additional dry years, it really doesn't have much of an impact. And that's the problem with climate change is because climate change has increased temperatures so much that the odds of getting a couple of good wet years in a row, a couple of years where you actually bring you out of a drought, are less and less. So uh, that's why they're suggesting in this, um, in this research that it's very likely to continue this year, and it's pretty likely to continue at least for another seven or eight years. Is there a magic number of how many wet years we need, or is it just kind of an average? I mean, <laughs> more wet years yeah, than, than dry I mean, periods I, in, a, in a specified time? The important thing is you just need to get enough sort of climate variability and luck, essentially, to get you where you get, you know, a prolonged period of wet, of wet weather or wet seasons. And with climate change, as they've described, the researcher described it to me, you know, it's, it's really loaded the dice so that you don't have that. The odds of getting lucky and getting two or three or four wet years in a row are just much, much less than they used to be. And we're seeing that this geographic area, right, the Southwest is becoming like other parts of the world where they just don't get that rain anymore. Obviously, there's other parts of the country here in the U.S. that get a lot of rain, but it's this particular area that that is facing all this trouble. Yeah, I mean, the Southwest has always been dry. You know, it's more southerly, it's warmer. Uh, the rainfall patterns are different than, for instance, the Northeast or whatever. So it's always been dry. It's just getting drier. That's the problem, and it's getting hotter. And so droughts like this are more common, they're expected to be more common, they're expected to last longer than they have previously. Henry Fountain, climate reporter at the New York Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily.pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.